everyone. I'm Manisha, and this is Teach Your Kids. We are a podcast about how to optimize your child's education by tailoring it to their individual needs. Today, we have the author of the best-selling books, Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game, and Make Your Move, The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge, John Berger. Wait a minute, what? Manisha, why are you hosting a dating book writer on a show about childhood education? So, I mean, the guest I invited was probably just as confused as you when I asked him. So um, before my producer starts worrying that I'm pivoting this podcast to my not-so-secret fantasy of hosting a show about dating, I will explain my reasoning. First of all, I just value John's point of view so much. He's well-read, knowledgeable, and has such a valuable perspective. So I wanted to hear his well-informed opinion about things that are on my mind. So, you know, secondly, I've read John's books in my own quest to find a mate, and he's made a big impact on my life, in my self-confidence, in my power in the world. And then thirdly, I have just quoted especially pages 154 to 173 of his book, <laughs> Datanomics, so much in my discussions about parenting and educating children. So what's what's really interesting is that in this book, Datanomics, there's a story underneath the story, which is that John's thesis is that one of the reasons, especially in the first book, that women, especially women with a higher degree, are having so much difficulty finding their mate is because there are more educated women than there are men. So I was hoping that we could actually dive in today to talk specifically about the story under the story in your book. And I should just add to your bio that in addition to writing these two dating books and being somewhat of an accidental dating expert, you are a former senior writer at both Fortune and Money, an award-winning magazine writer and a contributor to Fortune. Your work has appeared in Barron's Bloomberg, Business Week, New York Magazine, The New York Post, Time, The Washington, the Washington Post, and so many more. Anyway, that was a long intro, but welcome, John. I am just thrilled to have you. I mean, I'm just so excited to talk to you and admire your work so much. Hey, hey Manisha, I always love these intros because like, like I, I always start thinking like I'm impressed with this person they're talking about because like I don't remember half the half the credentials. <laughs> sure, it's always nice to hear your bio, and I think surprising to know that the stranger you never met has spent so much time with you in a way, just like a rereading, reading your books. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but perhaps we can just dive right in with this education gap. I mean, could you tell us a little bit more about the gap and perhaps why it's happening? The origin of my first book, Datanomics, had a lot to do with my workplace. I was a senior writer at Fortune Magazine, um, married at the time. I'm still married. Uh, married, <laughs> um, young kids. But I had all these like female friends at Fortune who... I mean, the, the, the newsroom at Fortune was disproportionately women. And it was one of these things where I couldn't help but notice that the men at Fortune may not have had a whole lot going for them, but we were mostly like married or involved in relationships. While the women, I think on a, like a, if I could be honest, like on a dating, you know, scale had more going for them than we guys did. They, they, they like, 
they were disproportionately single. And the ones I was friends with had these dating horror stories or dating stories that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me as a, as a soon to be middle-aged guy um, who had been out of the dating market for a while. And, and the origin story for my first book, Gidonomics, was really this. Like, what, and I just knew a gazillion 30-something and 40-something women who had everything going for them, but couldn't seem to find a half-decent guy who would stick with them. Yeah, I mean, like, I, this is a familiar story, and I, I figured there had to be... This wasn't, it couldn't just be a coincidence that my wife and I and all of our friends seemed to know all these single women who had everything going for them and couldn't find a partner. But all of our single guy friends who were, yeah, like, like they didn't have any trouble at all. So I, I figured there was something going on there. Um, and I have to admit, when I began work on Datanomics, the first book, I assumed it had something to do with with the job markets in these super kind of cosmopolitan cities like New York or LA or Toronto or London. I thought there was something about, about these cities that was attracting disproportionate numbers of women. And that was why the dating market seemed to be lopsided. I was absolutely wrong. Um, the, if you look at the, at, if you look at the numbers of college grad women versus college grad men, it's even more lopsided in rural West Virginia than it is in Manhattan. Um, this is really a, this is a national problem. This is actually a, a global problem. Basically, every, every developed country has more women than men attending college. Incredible. So when you say lopsided, you mean in West Virginia, there's this same problem of more educated women than men, and they're also having trouble yeah, finding yeah. a partner. Like it's very, I, I think like because of so many of these TV shows that we all watch, like Sex in the City, it's very easy to assume, well, this is the big city thing. Like all the, right. you know, yep. like, or the rom-coms where, where there's a, a wonderful woman trying to find a guy, whether it's, when Harry met Sally, or definitely maybe, or whatever—all these movies like, like, like make it seem like it's an urban problem, but it's not. Like the, the the problem is the same in Montana and West Virginia as it is in the Lower East Side. So you came upon this incredible discovery, which is that there's this education gap between men and women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the you know so for the past. Uh, I know this isn't what you're most interested in, but, but <laughs> we'll get there <laughs> yeah, yeah. But for the past 20, 30 years. We've had essentially one third more women than men graduate from college. I think if you look at um, the most recent data, we're approaching 50 percent more women than men like a which is. I think like if you look at the latest Department of Education data, we're approaching a 60-40 ratio of women in college enrollment. And I know 60, like if you, if you express it as a ratio, it doesn't sound huge. I mean, but, my mom is a pre-med advisor and she told me that at Duke Medical School, the first year class is 72% women. Yep. I, I don't. 
it doesn't that doesn't surprise me at all. And obviously, none of the, like in the dating context, none of this would matter if we were all more open-minded about whom we choose to date and eventually marry. But the reality is, we are not open-minded, and I'm I'm always like extra careful to point out that this is not like a women thing. Men are actually even less likely than women to date someone, or I'm sorry, to marry somebody who's less educated than they are. And so this notion that men are like, woohoo, I'm going to like marry some cocktail waitress. That's not true. Like it, it, this is a Hollywood fantasy. Like, um, the, the, women are actually more open-minded when it comes to dating somebody with less education than men are. Um, but, but, the, but the, you know, the, the bigger picture reality is that college grads tend to want to date and marry other college grads. So we've ended up with these two very different dating markets, a, a white collar dating market with too many women and a blue collar dating market with too many men. Um, and that's, that's what I wrote about in Datanomics, explaining the phenomenon, Make Your Move. My new book tries to offer some dating solutions for women. Um, but I think what you want to talk about is <laughs> of this. Yes, I mean, I am very interested personally in the dating aspect of it, being someone who dated. And I will say that before I read your book, I had my dating settings set to only people who had a college degree. Let's, I mean, people, I'm sure they have an image in their mind forming. But I would also just say, I mean, this is a problem that happens with a lot of boys. It's a challenge for me as someone trying to date, you know, but we are definitely aware that there's so much variation within an individual sex or gender. I, I mean, I, I think you would probably agree with me on that, John, knowing the progressive that you are. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. But like, I, I always like to point out that, yet, like, I'm not assuming that everybody's hetero or right. yes, everybody absolutely. Is, mm-hmm. is binary in some way. And obviously, um, lopsided gender ratios do not affect same sex dating. Like, Queer women do not care how many or how few men there are, just as gay men don't care how many or how few women there are. So, like, so, so when I write about the dating component of this stuff, I'm I'm targeting an audience who buys dating books, which is disproportionately hetero, single, over thirty women. Uh, if if there were a different audience buying these books, I'd write for them. Absolutely. And I think that it's really valuable to target books and products towards a specific demographic and such as myself, you know, a single straight woman. And I mean, that helps focus your writing in a new way. And I, and I appreciate you saying that because obviously it doesn't apply to all people and there are great dating books out there for, for others. And we shall continue to expand the work we do to address multiple populations. So anyway, but I hope that for some people who are thinking about this gender dynamic and, and especially, I mean, I had you here because I want to help specifically the moms and dads who are trying to support young men and might be wondering why is this happening? And knowing about the biological differences that are most often occur is helpful. I would just love to hear about 
what you've learned as a father raising three boys. I mean, just starting it, I think you probably have over 20 years of experience in fathering boys at this point. And what, you know, what were some of your values and goals going in? What have you learned along the way? And if you're willing, what advice would you give to other parents of of boy who are raising boys and want to raise well-educated, happy, well-adjusted men? Okay, can I start with the obvious, which is that, like I have written these books to talk about, you know, uneven sex ratios, particularly as they apply to college and how they affect dating. So the fact that I, I have three boys, everybody's like, oh, like you know, like they like are your boys taking advantage of this stuff the same way that the men in your book um, books talk about it. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll say a couple things. Like one, my kids absolutely hate the fact that that their dad writes dating books. I'm sure <laughs> it's, it's it's extremely embarrassing. So um, for them, so um, yeah, like the, the whole idea that they're going to be like learning lessons from my books is like completely foreign. They, they don't have anything to, to do with it. But, but in terms of like the bigger stuff, um, I mean, I do think, you know, in terms of raising boys and writing about all this stuff that relates to dating, I do think it's helped me drive, you know, make the point. I think my wife, is probably been better, even better about this than I have, but just making the point to boys that behavior that might be okay when it comes to dealing with boys is not okay when it comes to dealing with girls. Like, 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 like you know, some of the things you might say to your boyfriend, to your male friends, um, isn't okay if you say it to your female friends. And I, and I think, I think we're kind of in a in a transitional period right now, and I think it's a lot of this stuff is kind of um, we're we're working we're working things out. We have to change things, and so of course there's going to be some awkwardness when you are learning new communication. There's going to be a period where you have to put your "don't touch me" sign in yoga class, and and then it's going to become more natural. But we have to go through this weird period. It's like it's like when you learn nonviolent communication, or or if you're going to a therapist and trying to get along better with your wife or your husband, or you know, you're going to need. It's going to be practicing this stuff is going to feel a little awkward at first, and I think that's what some of what people are experiencing. So dating aside, I mean, I really do believe that your 20 years of experience as a father gives you something to say about this. I mean, when you had kids, you weren't thinking about, you know, this whole dating crisis. So I'm just curious, like as a dad, like, did you have, did you want your kids to go to college? Like what did, what was your definition of successful parenting? If you had one, what were your goals? I, I actually think the, the more basic the goals the better the parent is going to be. So I, I like I just wanted my kids to be like responsible and kind and um like do their homework, you know, like you know, like they don't have to be the best, but they actually have to do the work. Like I don't you know, um so I particularly like with three kids, like particularly the youngest, I'm like, I mean, I think like focusing on the basics is the most important. Um, and 
I'm, I'm, you know, I, you know, I have three kids. I'm really proud of all three of them. I think they're like wonderful human beings. Um, so diving back into the topic at hand, I have an issue that's come up a lot with me. Um, I work with a lot of homeschoolers. I also support families who just want to enrich their children's education outside of school. And I'm really here to help families customize their children's education, whether that's going to school, adding in after school activities, homeschooling, whatever. So I have this group of parents that comes to me and really wants their two-year-old to start learning math. And there's this idea that the brains are just, I know, the brains are just absorbing information so quickly that this is the time. And if they learn math earlier, they will have more math knowledge later on. I have obviously lots of thoughts on this topic, but in your book, you know, you specifically talk about delaying kindergarten in order to be more intelligent. So what are your thoughts? Is is learning earlier better and why or why not? So Manisha, can I, can I, can I ask you a question and guess? Yes, you can. <laughs> Please. The parents asking you this are asking you about their first children, right? The, the, mm, these are not parents. That's who are like, such a good point. Right? Like, these are not parents it's, who are like yeah. asking you about their fourth kid, right? Yes, it's always the first child. Of course, of course. Because, mm. because like, um, I mean, I, I have three kids and... I'll tell you that with my youngest, like, like, and with my oldest, I had all sorts of anxieties and like, are we reaching these benchmarks and am I screwing up? That kind of thing. Mm, right. But, but this is one of the things where you learn along the way. And the whole idea that you're so, actually, it's a funny family story, my, which is relevant because my, my, um, my wife's, um, uncle was a math professor in, uh, at a college in New York. He's kind of a very eccentric guy, but he loved math more than anything. And like every Thanksgiving, he'd be like trying to teach the two, three, and four-year-olds calculus. Oh, <laughs> like, seems like a good idea. Like how cool would that be if a two-year-old knew calculus? Toys and like, but obviously it never worked. Like because three and four-year-olds aren't really meant to learn a high-level math. Um, and I, 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 I just think like, like this is back to the point. I, I think a lot of this has nothing to do with my books. This is just my experience as a parent that, that, that um, first time parents, I'm trying to say this kindly. Um, you can say it however you like. <laughs> um, they are worried that they're not doing the right thing. I mean, that's the definition of someone doing something for the first yeah, time. Yes. Um, <laughs> If you expect your kid to be able to, like, you know, do division at age four or read at age three, I, I, I'm sure there's like a minute percentage of kids that can do it. Um, but I wouldn't worry if it's not your kid. Like, I, my, my, um, I have a cousin who didn't actually speak until age five. Um, he went to Harvard Medical School and he's now a doctor. Uh, so, so like this notion that like 
if you don't hit certain developmental benchmarks by a certain age that you've screwed up <laughs> as a parent. Um, right. I, I, I wouldn't like, I, I, I really think a lot of first time parents just really work themselves into a tizzy about all these benchmarks and there would be, they and their kids would be better off just going with the flow a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think there's a wide misconception in that developmental stages don't necessarily correlate to specific ages. And so your child's brain is growing, it's going to grow to where it needs to be. But that can be very different for different children. And one child's brain might develop very quickly. I mean, I know children who teach themselves how to read at age two and other children might, you know, as you said, like not, not even be able to speak or might not want to speak until they're age five and go on to Harvard Medical School. So if you really get curious about developmental stages, I mean, first of all, it can help you have less anxiety but um, it also can help inform your children's learning. I mean, like, I really like Jean Piaget's four stages of cognitive development, where he talks about like sensory motor, pre-operational, concrete operational, formal operational. And if you look at those stages, you might understand, okay, my child might not be capable of abstract reasoning. So to start teaching them you know, formal addition or multiplication at this age, it's just going to frustrate them. They're not going to get it because their brain isn't there yet. Um, and then it can also depend on the topic. I mean, clearly, if you want your children to be bilingual in French, definitely start talking to them in utero. That is going to be best. Their brains are working so quickly, you know, but but something like, you know, calculus, it's, it's just not going to take or even literacy. Um, you know, but you, you can actually, I mean, you can do something where you expose them to books and read books to them and talk about how much you love math. That, that can be helpful. Uh, I agree with all that. I, I, I just think that, that, that sometimes the, the stress that first time parents have about these things can trickle down to the kids themselves. And, um, I like when I was a first time parent, I found a lot of comfort talking like like when my kids were in preschool with other kids, like my kids were the oldest and were my first. But when my kids were friends with kids who were the, like by far the youngest in their own families and like and kids who like I'm talking to parents who had kids who were like you know, older kids, it was really a relief. Like I always suggest that first time parents, you know, talk to the preschool playmates who have older kids because they know what's up. Absolutely. And I have so much empathy for first time parents. You know, I, I cannot, I mean, I have definitely judged people who I considered to be helicopter parenting or teaching their children. I mean, every teacher is going to roll their eyes when they hear a parent try to teach their two year old math because they are nervous. We are nervous about the child feeling extra pressure and developing a distaste for math or just getting super anxious. But I also really feel for the parent because they want to give their children the best opportunity available. And they and it's natural logically to think, oh, if they start learning earlier, it will be better. But the research is not there. That doesn't support that. 
So I like your idea of reaching out to community, though, especially if you know a parent who has raised a highly intelligent child and think, wow, I really want my child to be as successful as that parent. Say, did you teach your child to read when they were one? Was that your strategy? So I'm sympathetic to first time parents because you, you you don't know what you're doing, and 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 they're and you go online and you like you know you get into these parent groups like oh you know J- Johnny's doing like trigonometry at age three <laughs> you know, like yeah why isn't my, why isn't Billy doing trigonometry like so it's very easy to think you're falling behind but but if you've I do think parents who have been through this a few times, the, the, the parents, like, again, when I was with my third, I had a much more sensible view of all this than I did with my old. Yeah. So some, a part of it is simply experience and learning through experience. And then the second part you talked about is having a community that you can rely on for support. I mean, having parents, you know, who have another child who's a different age to talk to. I mean, it can be really hard. I think even when parents, you know, know that they're pressuring their kids and they're anxious and that anxiety is impacting their child, it's hard to figure out how to deal with that. I mean, especially as a parent who's very busy and has a job and is anxious and feels like they don't even have a second to sit down and do some meditation. So that can be a real challenge. Yeah, and Look, and I also acknowledge that some of these things are especially complicated nowadays. Like my, 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 my oldest son is actually now a teacher in the, in the public school district in Massachusetts. And um, the, there are a lot of kids like who, because of COVID, should have learned to read um, a couple of uh, two, three years ago, but way behind because of COVID. Uh, and because of our, you know, so it's, I, I like, I have to admit, I'm really glad as a parent, I didn't have to like go through the early, like, I mean, my, my youngest was a high schooler during COVID. So I didn't have to like the idea of like having to, having a kid have to learn basic math or basic reading in the middle of COVID would have been extremely stressful to me. And I'm glad I didn't have to go through that. For sure. That can be really challenging. And I think one of the difficulties with COVID is that, I mean, these schools had to pivot overnight. And a lot of them were teaching school to kids online the way they teach kids to school in person, which is lecturing for six hours straight. And that simply wasn't working. And what I saw is that the families who knew about, you know, for example, some of the adaptive reading apps out there or use their own curriculum to help their children one on one did a lot better. But it was just impossible for some of the kids um, to learn during that period. I mean, my my, my son is a school teacher tells me that he, that this was last year. He was telling me that he had, he had, he he basically had some fourth graders who couldn't really read. And, and he, and, and he, uh, he attributed this to COVID. That's, that's wild. You know, I mean, actually there's a really incredible podcast out. I think it's called the science of reading or sold a story. And it's about how, the reading curriculum that we use in most public schools isn't actually aligned with the science of reading. Um, it uses a whole language approach of, you know, matching words with pictures when what 
decades of research shows us is that children learn to read through systematic phonics. I'm not, uh, you don't I'm, buy it. <laughs> no, I, I just, I'm like, I, I'm imagining my son listening to this and barking at me. So I, I, I'm not blaming it. All person. right. I'm not blaming the curriculum. No, I welcome you challenging me on this no, one. I, That's what we're I, here I, for. I'm, I'm blaming, I'm blaming a, a pandemic, not blaming yeah. a curriculum. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, I hear you. And it definitely contributed. I mean, the, the data is clear. Kids are behind in reading and it's really hard to catch up. I mean, what is your son doing to address this in his classroom? So, you know, he's actually an elementary school you know, band teacher. He's a music teacher. Um, uh, but but he, you know, so, so he, he's kind of it's not his responsibility to fix it necessarily. But but, um, you know, He's smart and observant, so he sees things, um, you know, and he was student teaching in college as well. So he's, see, he's seen the, the change. Um, I mean, look, I'm, he's optimistic. I'm optimistic that this is a, sorry, this is kind of a blip and we'll move through it. We will. We will. And um, we're learning and we're evolving. And goodness knows, I mean, people. There are so many incredible teachers in the school system, even though a lot of them are leaving and they have really innovative and creative approaches to addressing them. So hopefully if we can listen to teachers, we can we can support these children in learning more. And he would tell me to say that, that music is the key to all this. OK, great. <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I do think that that. Um, that a lot of school districts are, are cutting music programs and music in particular has a lot of um, um, uh, connections to math in particular. And like, you know, kids who are good in math or good in music and vice versa. So I, I like if we want to, you know, promote math and sciences, promoting music might be a good thing as well. Absolutely. I mean, the math is clear, but also in a way programming. I mean, having to learn this new language of music that that teaches you how to play um, creativity, which is absolutely critical, you know, building entrepreneurial skills for the future. And it's, you know, and having kids love learning and it's it's all very, very important. So and, and, you know, I mean, this maybe this is going to cause some controversy in our podcast here interview. But I will say that, you know, I do work with a lot of homeschooling families and their people are always saying, you know, well, the problem with homeschooling is that kids don't learn. Kids aren't learning. And I mean, the research shows that's not true. But then I look at the school system and these kids are way behind in math and reading. So, you know, are kids learning at school? I mean, not necessarily. I mean, of course, there was a pandemic. So that I have no sense of whether homeschooling kids learn math and and uh, English and reading better than other. But 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 as a non music person myself, who raised three kids who are super into music, and uh, I've I've gotten as an adult and as a parent, I've become more appreciative of music and. Um, I guess I do wonder, like the, the mu- you know, like if you're homeschooling your kids, you they aren't participating in a music program, which isn't just about playing an individual instrument. It's about like if if you're the viola in an orchestra, you know, need to know when to come into like a group, like like each instrument fits into a into a broader picture in an orchestra. 
So it's it's not just you're learning to sing or you're learning to play trumpet. You need to like understand how you fit into the band or how you fit into the into into the orchestra. And I, as as somebody who later in life has become interested in music in ways I never was when I was young, I've, I've been thinking about this a little bit in terms of well, I I feel like I I think these these kids who opt out of music may be missing out on something. For sure. And I, I happen to think that a lot of the ideas of homeschoolers sitting alone and not having any friends or not interacting in group activities is largely false. I mean, there are homeschool bands. There are very active homeschooling groups. A lot of these kids participate in homeschool orchestras or orchestras in after school activities. Um, but I do think that as we consider the skills that we want our children to learn, participating in group activities, especially creative group activities like band or even theater is really crucial to their development. It's not just about the one-on-one -on -one mastery learning, that, that group learning and those real group projects. I'm not talking about token group projects are are critical. There are kids who go to public schools who don't participate in bands yes. and orchestra who miss They're out. They're missing out. Yeah. So, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly not, not picking on the homeschooling kids. I just think, I, I just think like, <laughs> yeah. somebody, if somebody who's kind of learned this later in life because of my kids, um, I, who never really thought about music a whole lot until now, like I, I have an appreciation particularly through my son, Alex, which I did not have before. That's lovely. And I actually played piano all until I was about 16. And I definitely feel like it was very important for me in terms of just almost meditative focus, but also the math and the memorization and the creativity. But sometimes I do wish that I had learned an instrument that was easier to play with others. I mean, it's kind of hard to just you know, join an orchestra and play piano unless you're really good. And you can't just kind of bring a piano with you and you're traveling all around the world. And so and I'm like, eh, I wish I'd learned the guitar or something, you know, harmonica, flute. My son, who's the elementary school band teacher, I mean, he plays, I mean, at this point he plays a million instruments, but his primary instruments are saxophone and clarinet. Um, but, but he's like been a, in a gazillion, like, community pit orchestras for musicals and things like that. And he's, he's been in all these kind of group settings where he's playing either in a musical or in a, in a band. And I do think there's a lot of value to that for kids sort of figure out like how you fit into kind of a, 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 um, a group setting. These, I feel so happy. These students have such a wonderful teacher it's it's really great. We're so I, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, it's good. I mean, as I said, when I started this podcast, I thought about who would I love to have a conversation with about education and you are at the top of my list. So I'm really grateful that you're willing to humor me and go in all these different directions today. John, I'm just so excited that I got to host you on my show because your books have influenced me so much. And I mean, really, I think, I mean, obviously, like the dating part, even though I'm still single, so <laughs> you failed me there. But I think just in terms of my own self-confidence, I really felt like dating was the only place in my life that I couldn't take power, where I couldn't be authentic, where I couldn't stand in, in integrity. And you really helped change my view of myself. And I think... You know, also good parenting does that. It helps children develop confidence. So my last question, 
Um, I like to think that my podcast is about having a passion for learning. Is there anything interesting that you're studying or learning about right now that you'd like to share? Well, I, I don't know if this will fit or not, but I... I, I <laughs> it can be I, totally unrelated. It can be about candy. Unrelated. I mean... <laughs> this is totally unrelated. Um, Great. Perfect. Uh, That's the best kind of answer. <laughs> okay. but, but in my day job, I, I work for an investment company, kind of a retirement company. You know, we help people sort of plan for, you know, plan their finances for retirement. And I've been amazed recently when I dig into the numbers at how many centenarians there are. In other words, people who live to 100. Um, I mean, my, my, and obviously, like if you do, you're planning for retirement, you know, the, the fact that more and more people are living to a hundred means you have to like stretch your money a little bit longer. And I'm just amazed like the, you know, like our, our company alone, I'm not going to name them, but our, our company alone has over a thousand clients who are a hundred years old or older. Holy smokes. Wow. I had no idea. That is fascinating. That, that was a great answer. I mean, I think about like retirement plan, this idea that like there are that many people living to a hundred. Um, like when I was a kid, I didn't know anybody who lived to a, who made it to a hundred. Um, I, I know a few now. So that's amazing. And you know, I mean, it, my uncle was telling me about a speech where people were saying, what's the you know, biggest change? And it's, you know, our advancement in medicine has changed every aspect about life and society. I like, again, I'm not a doctor, but I'm guessing that you know, between smoke, between eliminating or cutting back on smoking and removing lead from gasoline, I bet that alone is like, you know, added like five, six, 10 years to people's you know, longevity. Well, it's been a true pleasure to host not a doctor, not an education expert, dating expert, John Berger on the show. I mean, thank you so much for coming. It's, it's been such a treat. I really appreciate being able to have this chat with you today. 